So, can I be honest for a second? When I first started this podcast, I didn't particularly have high hopes for it. In fact, if you hear my episode on her with Mina Brown, which I recorded right when I got the idea for this podcast, I specifically say that this is going to be a quote mini series. Because, well, I thought I'd make a couple episodes, say I did what I wanted to do, and then call it a day. I mean, honestly, I didn't really know if anyone would listen, and I'm no expert in theology or Christianity or issues pertaining to women of color. And on top of that, I don't know anything about podcasting or interviewing people. I just sort of had this passion, and I wanted to connect people with stories and ideas, and particularly as it relates to the Christian faith, and especially in a time when we're witnessing all sorts of weird and funky things as it pertains to evangelicalism. So I told myself I'd record a few episodes and move on with my life. But then something kind of crazy happened. (laughs) Y'all actually started listening and responding and engaging. And so thanks to all of you and all of your messages and emails and tweets, I decided to keep going. But looking back, I realized that a huge part of the reason why I didn't believe in this or in myself having the ability to do this is because imposter syndrome is a liar and imposter syndrome is also pretty paralyzing right i actually tweeted about this a couple months ago when i was having a rough writing day not being able to get my thoughts properly on paper and of course that led me into a spiral of despair and so i just decided to google imposter syndrome and see what other folks had to say about it and i just so happened to come upon this maya angelou quote that really moved me It said, quote, I've written 11 books and each time I think, "Uh uh-oh, they're gonna find out now. I've run a game and everybody is gonna find me out. Man, I mean, it's Maya Angelou. After 11 books, she's worried that we're somehow gonna find out she's some sort of fraud? It sounds crazy, but I think that's a universal experience. And really, isn't it comforting to know you're not alone? And so I want you to know that this podcast is sort of a testament to that. A reminder that you're not alone. And while I think imposter syndrome and the daily struggle of feeling like you're a fraud or like if you don't know enough is indeed a human struggle, I do think that women, and particularly women of color, face a unique struggle. Specifically Christian women who grew up in contexts where they were encouraged not to speak or be opinionated or be loud and especially not disruptive even when disruption is necessary. And well, this is a little bit of what my special guest, Kathy Kong, and I talk about in this episode today. She wrote a really good book about the importance of using your voice, and she wrote it specifically from her perspective as a Korean woman. One of the most intriguing things for me in Kathy's book is how she weaves Queen Esther's experience throughout her own experience. Since we talk about Esther quite a bit, I wanted to give you a sort of refresher of her story. She was the sort of secret Jewish woman who ends up winning a beauty pageant and becoming queen after the king of Persia deposes his queen Vashti or Vashti because she refuses to parade her beauty around to a drunken king and his friends. And so to make a long story short, one of the king's counselors decides he wants to kill all the Jews in Persia because Esther's cousin, Mordecai, refused to bow down to him. But remember that the king doesn't know her true identity. And so the story ends well, but 
It indeed is a story of belonging and speaking up and identity and God in the midst of all of that. And so today you'll get to hear Kathy's amazing insight concerning this story and how it relates to hers. With everything from Esther actually having an uncolonized name, which is Hadassah, to her experiences of assimilation and standing on the shoulders of those who came before her. And we'll also talk about niceness versus kindness and the difference between superficial peace and costly justice and one of my favorite topics nowadays, and that's hope. We finish by talking about what gives us hope. And our conversation so much reminds me of one of my favorite Anne Locke quotes that says, Hope begins in the dark. The stubborn hope that if you just show up and try to do the right thing, the dawn will come. You wait and watch and work and you don't give up. And so I hope this conversation moves you as much as it moved me. And again, I thank you so much for listening. As your enthusiasm about the stories of women of color has encouraged me to keep taking the next step forward. And I will say, if you do enjoy this show, please don't hesitate to leave a review. And so I welcome you to the protagonistas. We're good. Okay, great. So anyway, yes, I'm so excited to chat with you. I don't know if I, actually, you probably don't know this, but you are one of the first people that I reached out to, like back when I was thinking about doing this whole thing. And it was just like one of those thoughts. And it's funny because I was like, I don't know, should I do this? Like, I don't even know what the heck I'm doing. Like, I don't even know how to interview people. I'm not a journalist, you know? Like, I was just like, what, what why, you know? And then um, that, like, I know that women of color, like group or whatever that we're both in right when I as I was thinking through this you had posted a you know I think like an excerpt of your book or something and honestly that was like I was like yes that was like a sign I'm like okay you know we got people like I can do this you know so that's great I know isn't that funny and so yeah so I'm so happy that you know as you were one of the first people to that I thought of you know that kind of came on my radar I'm happy that we're finally able to speak Um, And, you know, and back then it was like this because it took me a while from when I thought, okay, I want to do a podcast because I listen to podcasts a lot. And of course, you know, it's all done by by white men. And so I was like, I just want, you know, and I had just spoken actually to Amina Brown and I was on her podcast and I'm like, wait a minute, I think she's the only person doing this, like, or one of the few. And one I'm of the like, few, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, we need more. I mean, thankfully, you know, since then, it's been, I've been able to, you know, hear of more people doing this. But anyways, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. And, and, you know, I had to work through that whole imposter syndrome and no one's going to listen, you know, but people want it. And so. Yes, they do. Yeah. They so do. They really do. It's crazy. Anyway, so I want to begin by just asking you about your background and your culture and your experiences growing up and, um, you know, just tell me about yourself. Yeah, so I am, let's see, where to, where to start once upon a time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I came to the U.S. when I was eight months old, so uh-huh. my parents and I are immigrants 
and we came from Seoul, South Korea, hmm. and uh, ended up in the Chicagoland area. We lived in uh, Chicago proper mm -hmm. for a number of years, and then moved out to the West suburbs as far as our money could take us, mm -hmm. I guess, is what yeah. happened. And um, it really wasn't until we ended up in the suburbs where, and I was in second grade, there was definitely awareness around race. Mm -hmm. So up until then, growing up in the city, yeah. uh, it wasn't something that I necessarily had to think about because it was, I was one of many. Yeah, totally. How's that? Yeah, so mm -hmm. I was one of many. One of many, not just in terms of students, but in terms of neighbors and teachers. Uh, but it was definitely when we moved out to the suburbs where I had that first sense of being the other mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. a very distinct way. And that definitely stuck with me uh, because so many of the childhood typical kid experiences then become framed in that manner so yes kids get teased kids get bullied um, do kids do all children get teased and bullied about things that they have absolutely no control over mm -hmm. like their ethnicity and their culture or the way their parents speak at home um, the food you might bring to school yeah. to eat at lunch so things like that mm -hmm. um, but I also grew up uh, in the church so the story in the family is that one of the first things we did when we got to Chicago was to go to church with family and friends. Mm. So I grew up in the Korean immigrant church, fell in love with Jesus, fell in love with the Bible, mm. um, and experienced a very vibrant faith that has continued with me and is a part of me and my identity throughout my adulthood. So, you know, fast forward to my late 40s and married three older children, living in the suburbs. We are still Christians. We are still now struggling with faith mm -hmm. and understanding what Christianity and kind of the evangelical experience that I grew up with means yeah. as I have been kind of picking that apart. Yeah. Yep. 100%. I do love that you mentioned, um, like, the striking that, you know, how little kids, how, yes, they get bullied. And even yeah. with things that are so seemingly insignificant, like what food you bring, right? Like, that's how deeply embedded, you know, who we are and how... And things that may seem like if they're absolutely nothing, it's like that's why they carry so much importance, even in the lunch that you bring to school. <laughs> you oh, know? absolutely. Oh. The lunch you bring to school yeah. or the smells in your home. Yes, when yes. When you invite friends over who are not used to the smell of, say, white rice cooking, yes. either on the stovetop or in a rice cooker or... Mm -hmm the very distinct smell of kimchi when you open up a refrigerator or yeah. taste the ice yeah. in a bowl. Yes. So, yeah. That's so good, yeah. And so I think that that, um, you know, I, I read your book and, and it was wonderful, by the way. Thank you for your voice. And, 
Yeah, and I just loved how I felt. I saw that how there is in the smallest little details of who we are, of who God made us to be, of who you know. It's in all of the small details and so um with that i'm super interested one of my favorite things was how you kind of weaved the story of esther within your own story and specifically i want to call her hadassah because that is you know her name so i want you to talk a little bit about that um and then yeah it was just so powerful how you weaved her story within that so if you want to um i don't know yeah just talk to me about that or like expand on that a little bit yeah absolutely so you know, the the book of Esther alone is such an interesting and fascinating book. One, because there are not many books in the Bible, uh, in the Christian Bible, um, where it, the woman is featured and then the woman has a name. Mm-hmm. And Esther is such an interesting book, too, because God is actually never mentioned in the mm-hmm. book. And yeah. yet there it is. Mm-hmm. Bible, and uh, and the way I was told the story was always about Esther, but it wasn't until I was older and reading the Bible on my own mm-hmm. where I learned, oh, she had another name, and it's Hadassah, and yeah. that is how my Jewish friends know her, right? So that the Hadassah of my Jewish friends is the Esther of my evangelical upbringing. And Mm -hmm. I just remember even that first kind of connection of knowing how this same person was known very differently in two different faith traditions that Mm -hmm. had connection. I resonated so deeply with that because growing up and when we immigrated to the States and I entered school, one of the first things my parents did was to give me a quote American name. Mm, mm-hmm. And so I'm Kathy to, you know, your listeners, my readers, mm-hmm. uh, my neighbors. And yet the only people who call me by my given name are my parents mm. and my close family. And I just when I made that connection, there was something about trying to unpack Esther's story bit by bit, because I, I I knew I just couldn't deal with all of that at once. Yeah. And so it, it continues to this day where I, I go back to the book of Esther and I go, oh, is there something else that I need to sit in? But that was a big thing about how Esther is Hadassah, and we call her Esther, and there's this sense of assimilation. Mm. There's a sense of hiding who she is as a Jewish woman. She's told by Mordecai, you know, don't tell people, don't be Jewish. And mm. so she's one of those examples, unlike, say, Daniel, who continues with the Jewish diet and those practices. She does not, mm-hmm. which in the king's palace. And so um, on that part, I feel like. I completely resonated with that sense of uh, keeping at some level of consciousness, I am Korean American, I am an immigrant. My life at home can be very different than the life I have in school or at work or walking around in the neighborhood. Yeah. And there are so many things that 
day to day people who interact with me have no idea because they only know Kathy. Mm-hmm. They yeah. have no idea who Kyunga is, which is my given Korean name. Mm. That's so rich. And so can you, uh, when I, as I was reading what you, you know, what you had to say about Esther and about yourself and about all of that, like the word intersectionality kept coming to mind. And so can you talk to me a little bit about intersectionality and what that means like in your life and for you as, you know, a Korean woman? Sure. So, you know, I want to make sure um, folks listening understand and, and the word has been used quite a bit, even in kind of evangelical or evangelical adjacent spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the, the actual word um, was created by a black feminist scholar named mm-hmm. Kimberly Crenshaw. And um, it's about looking at uh, systems of power uh, along with uh, class, race, sexual orientation, age, religion, disability, gender, uh, and and that all exists at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, and and that it can't be it can't be separated and taken separately. And so I look at Esther as one of those examples of intersectionality. Of mm-hmm. um, we cannot separate the fact that she is a Jewish woman. Yeah. Um, and she is a Jewish woman not in modern times mm-hmm. or in the U.S. Yeah. And, um, and understanding why she was obeying Mordecai and why she was in this strange situation where she becomes part of the king's harem. Mm. And how do we as modern readers not associate uh, our understanding of what a queen might be like mm-hmm. to her actual existence. And then what does that mean for us as women, for me as a Korean-American woman? Uh, how, how did my assimilation into the U.S. and American culture impact the way I engaged with Esther and the story of Esther? So it's many yeah layers all at once which I love which I love but I also know that was not something that was encouraged mm-hmm. in my uh, faith experience um, taking on that level of complexity isn't always affirmed mm. you know we want to make it really simple yeah let's just all get along yeah <laughs> No, totally. Um, And so that, yeah, that makes me think of, I know you said something along the lines of coming into ourselves. And I I love the complexity of that, right? Of like, what does it look like to come into ourselves? And you had a quote that I really love that it said, sometimes coming into ourselves requires entering into the pain and sacrifice of others who have gone before us. And so can you talk to me a little bit of that? I mean, obviously you were speaking about Esther, but like, what does that look like in, you know, just everyday practical living? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it comes from Esther's story, Mm -hmm. um, Queen Vashti and, you know, we wouldn't have had Esther if it weren't for the first Queen's 
kind of coming into herself and saying, no, I'm not going to dance for you and your guests. I have my own party to attend to. Mm. And for me, it has that, that sense of those who went before me and the pain and the, um, the leadership that women over time have shown, I think for me has continued to grow like the number and the people that I think of. And so, you know, the easiest and most accessible answer for me is always the women of my family mm. and trying to understand um, part of the history that they carry, even the stories that they have found too painful to share fully, mm. things that I only know bits and pieces of um, around uh, my mom and particularly my grandmother and stories that I don't have of my great grandmother and so on around the colonization of Korea mm-hmm. and their experiences in that, um, and then the the experiences that my aunts or my mom has have had here in the U.S. as immigrants, and some of the sorrow that I think for them is still too painful to talk about fully, yeah. but they definitely carry. Mm-hmm. Um, in the way they interact with the world around them. And then over time, I have learned so much from other women of color, uh, black, brown, Mm. indigenous, other Asian women, Latinas, um, in how their stories were not a part of the history that I was taught. Yeah. Um, Whether it's U.S. history or particularly church history mm-hmm. and um, and how that impacts the way I live or even the access that I have to the information that I have. Mm, that's so good. Yeah, that reminds me of, I know in, in like Latinx culture, like we call that abuelita theology and that's something mm. yeah, that I'm just so enamored with, you know, like grandmother theology, you know. Yeah. I yeah. had a conversation with someone recently and she was telling me you know kind of using the idea of Wakanda in a in a you know general like church setting and and she was talking about how like our grandmothers and our you know the small you know black and brown like tr- it, you know multicultural churches in the inner city like they have the vi- vibranium you know and they're mm-hmm. hiding in plain sight and I was just like yes you know like the idea that like my grandmother has vibranium and just right there in plain sight you know and that and going back to what you're saying, like that's the history that we're, or those are the, the people whose shoulders we are sitting on and who we are learning from essentially, even those stories that are unshared because they're too painful. You know, I'm currently trying to, my, my grandmother has dementia and she's kind of in her last final stages of life. And I'm very intentional about trying to, hey, you know, can, can we talk about this? And and it's just one of those things that as soon as a memory starts getting, she's like, no, I don't remember. I don't want to talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, you know, my grandmother immigrated here in, in the seven, in the sixties. And so, yeah, so it's, it's, um, it's heavy. It's heavy for a lot of our, our grandmothers, but that's where, that's where the faith is at, you know, that has been carried oh, on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that going back to the, the idea of intersectionality is, you know, it, it is, it's a different, um, I come from them, but I'm definitely not in a in a similar situation, right? Yeah. I, we've um, our family has moved 
up right in class mm-hmm. and, and education so even though my my parents were educated and came to the US they were not US educated and mm-hmm. so right all there all these levels of stratification and um, and then levels of assimilation mm-hmm. and and then an awareness at least for me in kind of proximity right so I I live in the suburbs the suburb I live in is pretty white mm-hmm. um, and my my husband and I um, he is also Korean American we are fair-skinned mm-hmm. and um, and we are both you know white-collar professionals and even mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. terminology is so interesting mm-hmm. and problematic yeah. and yet right but that all kind of comes together in how we look to those stories or we're told to approach um, the wisdom of our grandmothers and great grandmothers. And, and so, you know, yeah. if, if you can get any stories or any bits and pieces, yes, do that. Yeah, um, totally. Because it's lost, it's, mm-hmm. it's lost. Yeah. So I know you talk a lot about, um, I mean, obviously the whole like purpose of your book is is finding your voice and using your voice um so can you just kind of give us like a quick little i know probably won't be quick but just how you kind of came into that right like how what was that process of you you know essentially finding and 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 speaking up and using your voice sure it's it's probably been about 20 plus years of imposter syndrome Mm, yes (laughs) and and kind of um you know, one step forward, five steps back, mm. and uh, or jumping into a pool and realizing, I may not know how to dive, but I can at least float a little yeah. bit or doggy paddle. It's um, good. And and trying to figure out uh, one, how was I wired by God, mm. right, by design? Who am I? Not just in terms of all of the personality profiles, leadership tests we can take or the latest Enneagram Mm -hmm. uh, phase or thing that people are going towards, but really understanding not only how God created me, but how does God see me and my community? Mm -hmm. And what are the gifts, not just of my own individual self, but of my community and of my people and of my family? And, and what does that mean? What does that look like to live that out? Because I believe that that is part of the good news mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the gospel. How does, how does that look like to live it out? Not just in my words that I speak, but in how I live and interact with the world and creation and other humans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's been the journey. And, yeah. uh, and the decision to write the book was actually really difficult because... I think many folks who think about putting something down on paper feel like they need to be experts. Yeah. And I just don't see understanding oneself and understanding God as something you can be an expert on. Amen. (laughs) So so even the challenge of putting that down was one of 
try to figure out how to communicate. Like this is a process and it's a process that I'm still going through. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, like you said, we feel like we need to kind of know all the pieces and have them all together before we can articulate it. But I think like part of the process of understanding what you believe is in the articulation of it, you know? So like, as you're writing your book, you're like, Oh, this is how, you know, like, this is what I thought about this. (laughs) Or like, this is what, yeah. yeah. And I think for this story, yeah. is something that I've been carrying for a long time and and here's here's why this yeah. is this is why because I've, I've been working through this voice thing this how does God see us thing and this was part of that story yes so good amen okay so this is kind of a might be like a, it's a random question but I tweeted this a couple weeks ago and I felt like a lot of people really felt it like resonated with it and then I opened your book and I saw that you mentioned this and so it's something that I wanted to bring up and it is the idea and so essentially what I had tweeted was um, the way that niceness and kindness Mm -hmm. are often like conflated as if they mean the same thing and so you know of course like that develops in in Christians essentially that's what I'll focus on is like this faux you know nice you just have to be nice when niceness is an outward thing and kindness is what's actually a fruit of the spirit and kindness I mean you can be kind without necessarily being nice right like because kindness is is a a, you know state of the heart is a is a virtue is okay so anyways what you had mentioned which I feel like goes along with this is um Midwest nice because <laughs> you're from the Midwest and I lived in the south for a little bit which was really weird for me so I similar to you I grew up in Miami in, in a huge city very very multicultural um, you know very a lot of Latino culture which you know I'm Latino obviously so it felt very much just normal for me and right. then I moved to the south and it was like major culture shock literally yeah. You know, I mean, I've, I've said it on this podcast a million times before, but yeah, I mean, it was just people were looking at me like a deer in headlights, like, who are you and why are you here? And you need to just turn it down 10 notches. But um, in that, I was really introduced to that very much like, you know, ni- like that outward niceness or like that Midwest nice. And what you said that I really loved is that it's mistaken as godliness, and yes. then you continue with pursuing superficial peace over costly justice and how that creates a false dichotomy, unity versus diversity. And I really love that. So if you can just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So I do think that there is something about, I mean, there's a lot going on, right? So what you tweeted about the niceness and and because you tweeted it, right, there's all the stuff that's on the internet mm. and Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I Mm -hmm. feel like Instagram is a little nicer, but um, uh, there is a a culture and an immediacy to being able to communicate what you mean, who you are aligned with, who you agree with or disagree with, and it can snowball a lot faster than Mm -hmm. we have control over. Um, And I think one of the reactions is this, this talk about civility yeah. being nice and 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 for one thing I mean if you spend any time reading the gospels I don't think there is there's not a lot of nice yeah there. there's, there's a lot of snarky and yeah. there's a lot of like oh 
Yeah. <laughs> Mic drops. <laughs> right? And like, yeah. oh, Jesus, you broke a law. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And so I do think that there is this uh, misconception that Christians should be fake nice mm-hmm. to each other. And that is what makes us Christians, right? So. Mm-hmm. They'll, lo- they'll know us by our love, and somehow we translated that into, like, they will know us because we're just nice oh, Yeah. And I, I know a lot of nice, kind people mm-hmm. who are not Christians. Yep. Um, and I know a lot of Christians who, if you take them based on their Twitter feed mm-hmm. or how they are captured on film may not look always nice Mm -hmm. Uh, right so i think there's something about that that the culture is very kind of labeling people in a single moment um, taking things out of a broader context but i also think that there is the long hard work around justice around what does it mean for bringing about god's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven and somewhere I think we were told or taught to behave in such a way that just being nice Mm -hmm. was fine because we eventually will all get to heaven Mm. and the work of bringing about God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven that's hard Mm. I mean that Jesus was still working at it Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, and so I think that's that false dichotomy is uh, there's really nothing fake, nice, Midwest, nice, Southern politeness about the gospel. Yeah. It's very disruptive. It, it's very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And yet I think in our discomfort, it just became easier to tell people to be polite. Mm-hmm. And the cost of that has been, we actually don't know how we harm one another and how we really hurt one another. And so I don't think that we know how, um, how deep that pain goes. Mm. That's so good. Yeah. And I think we see it very much so like through the internet it's just kind of putting stuff out there and it can just take all sorts of different turns and it's, you know, it can become such a mess. And then I think there's also such a disconnect between that and then how we interact in person and like, you know, what's kind of said in that aspect. And, and yeah, so I think um, it's important to kind of go deep and really try and understand, well, what does it mean, you know, to, because like you said, it is costly and it's dangerous, you mm-hmm. know, to, to mm-hmm. not just be nice, but um, to seek justice um, and to be disruptive. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's good. Um, and so I do want to ask you, because I know that we are living in a time that can feel just very hopeless um, in certain aspects. Of course, there's obviously so much hope, but in just so many aspects of it. I mean, we turn on the news and we read Twitter and we're just it can be hard to have hope and so i just want to know and where where do you find hope and what gives you hope 
specifically in the church? Ooh, yeah, that that's actually been really a hard I know. question. <laughs> I know. So I will say, I will say, um, so just yesterday, it was a Sunday, and I had been invited to um, guest preach at a local church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, small church that doesn't have its own building. And, and it's a church, actually, that I have visited before, and we've kind of snuck in and snuck out. And, mm-hmm. and what gave me hope uh, was just some of the really mundane things on any given Sunday, like the row of little kids that were sitting next to me in the front row, Mm. because that's the only people who will sit in the front row (laughs) are the little kids, right? Adults never want to sit in the front row. Um, And they were kind of being children and Mm. laughing and pushing each other and also singing and also praying Mm. and also looking around to see what the adults were doing when the congregation was blessing and welcoming their new new youth director that Mm. that gave me hope um Mm. what gave me hope was to see the youth director's parents there to bless her and be a support for her and how um, this young woman who is a white woman in a multicultural church Mm. uh, part of her qualifications was that she's fluent in spanish Mm, and that when that was you know read off of kind of her bio the congregation cheered Mm, wow and even the non-spanish speakers cheered you know like that Mm. that gave me hope and then um and then even as i preached about jesus and god being a mother hen Mm. and protecting her chicks but but the people refusing and saying that's not what we want Mm. uh, what gave me hope was that there were several people who then afterwards thanked me Mm. which was a privilege but also that they were so thankful to have that image of god as mother yeah and that gave me hope because when i was given the lectionary passage i was like oh no oh no god is mother jesus is no yeah (laughs) and here's this here's this evangelical church And, and, and people responded and said, yeah. yes, we needed that. And so that gave me hope on oh, good. a Sunday where I was really grateful for that time in scripture and study, but wasn't sure yeah. how that was going to land. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so good. That's good. Yeah. I um kind of going along with that. I, so I just took a, a preaching practicum course at Fuller, and the the class is centered around uh, preaching faith, hope, and love. Mm. And for our second sermon, we had to preach on hope. 
And I, like prior to, you know, trying to get this sermon out, I was just like freaking out. I was like, what the heck am I going to say? Like I right now is not one of the most hopeful times in my life. You know, um, I've definitely experienced hope and I still do experience hope. But just in general, I'm kind of just struggling with that. And I've I've been okay with it. I've kind of just sat in that tension and said, okay, like I know I'm just going through this right now. And and it'll pass or maybe it won't or you know i'll work through it um but having to sit and like write this sermon i was just like this is horrible i don't know what i'm gonna say I'm, it's gonna be like just a hot mess well i just i kind of went up there and my sermon was basically like you know hope begins in the dark and like disillusionment is essentially just it can be just birth pains or you know birth pains towards something else beautiful and and it was all just stuff of just me kind of sharing of i don't have hope but this is what i think hope is sort of thing you know and yes. when i finished i literally could barely walk out of the room because i wanted to sob so bad i ran to the library i like hid in a corner by a bunch of books and i wept my eyeballs out and then i'm like all i kept thinking was oh my gosh, there's still hope left in me. Like just yeah. the fact that that came out of me and I, yes. you know, and, and like it was received so well because who hasn't experienced disillusionment in the church? And, yes. you know, so it was just one of those things like, oh, there's hope in me. You know, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, like we're going to be okay. And I just love that you experienced that through a preaching like through you yourself sharing something that you're like I don't even know what the heck you know but I think that's such a huge part of it right I know Anne Lamott says like just show up and keep doing the right thing and hope will somehow peek its head you know just show up and keep keep doing it keep taking yeah. one step forward yeah because last week was kind of a bad week I mean there mm-hmm. have been many bad weeks in the yeah. last few years but you know I the, the heaviness of um of the massacre in oh, New Zealand yeah. and and then waking up this morning there was another shooting I think mm-hmm. it was in Holland or something mm-hmm. so just this heaviness and like you said I, I it's it's easy to lose hope or not to know exactly if I have hope exactly <laughs> yeah um, so it was good to have that reminder and it was good to know um, it, it, it's a good question for you to ask because it, it is it's easy to lose hope yeah yeah it totally is and then it's just I think like you said I love that you mentioned that it's in just the mundane details of just everyday little children laughing and you know and because we want oftentimes to look for hope in Mm -hmm. these really grand you know in grand places and they're there but they're also in you know just the kids laughing and you know just forcing yourself to just do the next thing and after you do it you realize oh okay yeah it's there you know right and it's not that they don't they're not aware of yeah. the real things happening in the world. It's just that they have to process it in the way they're going to process it as a seven, eight, nine-year-old kid or mm-hmm. even younger. And because I knew I was coming in with that heaviness and just the like, oh, God is mother hen. Yeah, mm-hmm. this is so dear. Um, mm-hmm. To see that and that they, you know, and, and those kids, had to come to church yeah 
right? Like, this is the forced Sunday activity, and yeah. yet it was wonderful to see how some of them greeted each other and that they were enjoying being there. And yeah. that, and I can't always say that as an adult at yeah. church. Yep. Yep. That's so good. Okay, well, so what is it um, or where is it that our our listeners can find you or follow you or what is it that you if you're working on anything in specific right now that you want them to know about or any, just anything you want to share? Sure. So uh, listeners can find me on Twitter and Instagram and uh, the handle is the same there at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong and I occasionally update my blog so that's kathykong.com and those are now the spaces that I send people to. I'm still on Facebook, um, but really the blog, Twitter, Instagram. Um, not working on anything new in particular, hoping to, trying to get myself out of this winter funk. Mm. It's March, I know, but I'm in the Midwest, so <laughs> oh, I still kind yeah. of like winter. Um, so that's where people can find me awesome. and connect with me. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you so much for chatting with us today, Kathy. And I will definitely be seeing you on Twitter and places like that. So Thank you, Kat. Yeah, awesome. Have a wonderful morning. You too. Well, I guess afternoon for you. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Alrighty. Bye. Bye.